0: If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter one. I committed myself last week to doing Exodus one eight through two ten. I'm here to deliver on that promise. So we are going to do Exodus one eight through two ten. Let me just say uh, in the uh, before we get started in our passage today, we're, uh, that uh, come thou fount of every blessing, that last verse. I, don't, I was asking JT, and I should have asked Andy before we, uh, we sang it. I'm not sure if that is an original verse. Uh, uh, on that day when free from sinning I will see thy lovely face. I'm not sure if that's an original verse or if that's uh, more recent and one that was just added to it. But what a great thought that is. I, that hope that we've been promised that there will be a day when we will be free from sinning. Can you even imagine what that will be like? Think about it just for a moment. Everything that you do is right and good. Every thought that courses from one synapse to another is pure. Every word on your tongue, every aspiration, everything is good. I can't even imagine what that will be like. Oh, but it is going to be good, right? That is true freedom, when you can do whatever you want because whatever you do is right. That's true freedom. And then, of course, the song that we just sang, Christ the True and Better, walking through some of the pivotal characters or the, uh, the archetypes in the Old Testament and showing how all of these ultimately point us to Christ. These are shadows of the, of the substance that belongs to Christ. One of the things that we want to be mindful of as we work through Exodus is to say that it can be very easy, particularly in Old Testament stories, to get caught up in the drama of the story and just to read it as sort of a a religious story, I mean, in in the best sort of way, but to miss the fact that no matter what human character is on the scene or we're reading about, ultimately the main character is always God. The story is always about what he is doing for his glory and for the good of his people. And we're gonna see that today in Exodus one eight through two ten. So if you would turn there. I'm gonna just for the for the sake of time, I'm gonna read one eight to the end of the chapter. So one eight through twenty-two, and then I'll wait till we get to chapter two to read some of the verses about the birth of Moses. Right, if you grab your, uh, an outline as you came in, sorry, let me, let me make one more prefatory comment here. It struck me as, um, as uh, I was spending time in this passage how easy it is to get overwhelmed by the drama and the details and all of the little surprises, the little, as, as the kids say, the Easter eggs, right, that are hidden. Come on, kids, it's, that's relevant, Right? I'm, I'm hip, I'm cool, right? The Easter eggs that are hidden in the text that you, uh, you can easily sort of lose sight of what the main point or the, uh, the central theme is. And so partly as, uh, as a way to sort of keep myself grounded, but then hopefully as a way to assist you as well, I'm going to try as we go through Exodus in the uh, sermon notes that we hand out to have up at the top what we're going to call or refer to as the big idea for this passage. So if you get lost in any of the other parts of the, of the sermon or anything that we look at in the, in the passage, hopefully this is something that you can continue to return to either when you read, uh, when you read more on your own or when you're reflecting or reviewing the, um, the passage of Scripture. So looking at 18 through 2.10, if I were to try to sum up the main point that's being taught or being communicated in this portion of the story, I would say it this way. That God preserves his persecuted people and provides a son to deliver them. God preserves his persecuted people and he provides a son to deliver them. And then what we're going to do now is we're going to walk through this passage and we're going to take it in two parts. Chapter one, looking at how God is preserving his persecuted people. And then in chapter two, looking at how God provides a son to be their deliverer. So follow along with me starting at 1.8 in Exodus. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh's storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread, or it may be the more they were disgusted of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor, in mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birthstool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it's a daughter, she can live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife can even get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who was born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. This is God's word to us. Bow with me in prayer. Father, would You help us see now in Your inspired Word that no matter the depth of our suffering, no matter how much this world may afflict us, that we belong to You, that we remain Yours, and that nothing but Your will and Your good counsel will be brought to pass. Thank You for that assurance that we have because of the finished work of Christ that reconciles us to You and gives us that promise and that secure hope. We pray this by the Spirit and in His name, amen. So God preserves His persecuted people and provides a son to deliver them. One of the things that is helpful when we approach this passage is to consider the introduction that we looked at last week in Exodus, so that when we read about Pharaoh and the Egyptians making life miserable for the Israelites, we don't reduce this story to a human event's interest column or to uh, just something that sort of wets our curiosity or piques our curiosity, but that we see that there is much more happening in this persecution than what we would typically realize at first glance. So in verses 1 through 7 last week, remember we, we took notice of at least two things. one. We said that the opening of Exodus is introducing to us the idea that the promises that God made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He fulfilled. That Exodus 1, 1 through 7 is showing how God's people went from a family to becoming a nation, just as God said that they would. God was good to fulfill. He was faithful to His promises. Another thing that we, took, that we took note of, and this was, it could almost be sort of like a, a throwaway observation, but I, I think it's important to come back to, is that when you go back to verse 7, if you, you need to have your Bibles open, by the way, all the way, <laughs> all the way through this passage. All right. So when you go back to verse 7, and you see towards the end of the verse, or midway through, that the sons of Israel were fruitful and they multiplied. We said remember that that statement, that description be fruitful and multiply, that's the blessing that God pronounces on humanity all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And announces again when he gives humanity a new start after the flood with Noah, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, the blessing of God that he intends to bring back to his broken, sin-cursed creation is being realized through His covenant people. So, it's, it's doubly significant then in the opening paragraph of Exodus to see that two things are working simultaneously and hand in hand. One, that by multiplying the people, God is fulfilling His promises. God is being true to His Word, and that one of the things that He's doing by fulfilling His promise is bringing through The multiplying of His people, bringing His blessing to creation. He blesses His people so that we can be a blessing. He blesses His people so that all creation can be blessed. The reason that this is important, to get that, to, to, to have that hook to hang this passage on, is because when we turn the corner then and we enter into the story proper starting in verse 8, and we read about what Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is going to do to the Israelites who are multiplying, we are not to think about this as merely one people group pitted against another. This is not mere bigotry, in other words. This is, this is not mere superiority complex or political games. Or it is that. I mean, don't want to deny that. But I think one of the things that we're being invited to consider is that when the king of Egypt opposes Israel, because we know that Israel is thriving because of God's blessing on her, because of His promises, we ought to consider that whether Pharaoh recognizes it or not, what he's doing when he opposes Israel is that he's actually opposing God. Pharaoh is trying to undo the work that God has done. Pharaoh is trying to minimize the blessings that God is bringing to his people. He is trying to turn them back to reverse them. There are spiritual, eternal ramifications for what appears to be a human interest story starting in 1.8. That's the point that we're trying to make. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the powers, the rulers, the authorities, the world forces of this darkness. That's really what's going on, and that's what's going on here in Exodus 1. So this is not just, oh, we feel bad for the Israelites, can't Pharaoh be nice to them, can't they all just get along? This is someone who is setting himself up to oppose God's work and God's plans and God's purposes in His creation with His people. It is the height of defiance and rebellion. Notice then, having said that, coming now to the story itself, a new king... Comes to the throne in Egypt, who does not know Joseph, who's not familiar with the background, who's not really familiar with the friendly relations that have existed between this Hebrew people group and with the Egyptian nation. He does not see the Hebrews as something to add to or contribute to the good of their nation, but he sees them as a threat. Notice when Pharaoh in verse 10. When he sees and assesses that the Israelites are a threat to them, he says to his people in verse 10, come, let us deal wisely with them. Pharaoh is going to take his wisdom, his shrewdness, and he's going to try to work his will in contradiction to the will of God with his people. And he's going to do that in a very shrewd, wise way, except that you come to find out that for all Pharaoh's wisdom, he can't seem to figure out how to stop God's plan. His wisdom does not appear to be so wise. Look at how this plays out. Wise plan number one is, we're going to make these people so miserable with forced labor, with slavery, that we're just going to wear them down. So, in verse 11, He appoints taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. Look down at verses 13 and 14. This sort of gives by way of repetition, tries to give us a feel for the kind of labor that the Israelites are encountering. Listen, listen to the repetition. This, I'm reading from New American Standard. Hopefully your, your version, if you're not NAS, picks up this repetition. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor, Nazbi says rigorously. You could, you could translate that as severely. To labor severely. They made their lives, verse 14, bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they severely imposed on them, severe labor. This is curious, right? Pharaoh knows that work in and of itself does not stop people from procreating. Right, I'm trying to keep this above board because we've got right miners with us. Work, labor, even hard, severe labor does not necessarily mean that people are not going to multiply. What, what is he doing here? Why does he? Why does he think that this is going to work if we make them work long, hard hours? Their population will plateau and actually begin to decline. We'll be able to manage it and get it under control. No one really seems to know because the text doesn't tell us explicitly. Let me, let me offer at least one suggestion as to what Pharaoh might be thinking. This is not inspired, this is not the way that, right? This is has no divine authority. I'm just wrestling with the text. What is going on here? Why does he think this is going to work? I think that one of the things that Pharaoh may be calculating is, if we make life miserable enough for these people, they are not going to want to continue to build and invest in this life. Right? In other words, it's entirely reasonable for Pharaoh to look at the situation and say, you know, for, for several generations now these people sort of crept up on us because they've, they've had it pretty good. They've got their own little section of the country that they've been dwelling in. They've got their own pasture lands. They're living for all intents and purposes and rather free and autonomous. And so when life is good, yeah, why not build up that life? Let's, let's build families. Let's build up our community because life is good, and we want to enjoy this, but maybe if we make life miserable enough, hard enough, heavy enough, they won't be quite so hopeful, and they won't have such a strong desire, they won't feel compelled to build this community. You, you know this thinking continues even today, right? Who in the world would want to bring a child into this? Doesn't that, doesn't that sound similar? Sound familiar? The best thing that you could do, if you're not going to be selfish, is not to have a lot of children. All right, don't worry, you don't need to sweat. I'm not about to tell you that God wants you to have ten kids. Okay? I mean, if you do, that's great. That's a blessing, too. Here, here's the point, though. If one of the things at play here is that life is trying to be made so miserable for these people that they will be dissuaded from investing in their covenant community, from building up this people group together, and it's just going to cause them to just simply try to merely survive, and then the people will just sort of fade out. One of the best things that God's people can do to demonstrate Their hope for the future is to have kids. Listen, this is not the way that we typically think. I understand that. But there ought to be, if we can just take a practical point of application here, there ought to be for God's people, even today in 2022, there ought to be something about the way that we see life Parents, aspiring parents, grandparents, there ought to be something about the way that we see life that says one of the reasons that we're excited to see children is because we hope that by God's grace, these children that are being brought into existence are going to be children who will grow and who will be building the kingdom long after we're gone. If you don't have any hope for the future, you don't have to worry about it. But if you think that the promises of God are certain and secure, if you think that what God says in His Word in Psalm 127 and 128, that it's the Lord who builds the house, that children are a gift, the fruit of the womb is a gift, is a blessing for the Lord, then one of the things that Christians above all people should be able to do is to rejoice when children come on the scene and not to worry and fret about it. If there are young people seated in our pews, even so young that they sometimes make noise or they squirm or they just, you know, a little too energetic for us, that's good. That is good, people. That's life and vitality that God is meaning to use to build up his kingdom for his glory and for our joy. this life is hard. This life can be sorrowful. This life can be bleak. But for those who hold on to the promises of God, it is not so hard, it is not so heavy and not so bleak that there cannot be a hopeful aspiration to be able to enjoy children. Let me say, because I've I've hammered this home, let me say a word, and I'm I don't know who you are, but you need to hear this as well. One of, the, one of the heavy aspects of this world is that sometimes even when we desire to encounter God's blessing through marriage, by having children, sometimes that blessing does not come to fruition. Infertility is a real thing. All right. If we had more time, we could delve into this more. But I I want, if you're here and you've been there or you are there now, like you're saying, I I want that. I'm I'm open for that. Why isn't God giving it to me? Why isn't He giving it to us? I I just want you to know that if that hasn't happened for you yet, that's not a sign that God is angry with you. That doesn't mean that God does not favor you, that God does not want to bless you. The very best thing that I could tell you to do, the greatest comfort that I could give you if you're in that place is to say, the sign of God's unfailing favor and blessing upon you has already been given in the person of His Son hanging on a cross. That's how you know that He loves you and that He favors you. Pharaoh's plan then is to wear these people down and to eliminate them by way of attrition, however that's supposed to work. It doesn't work. There is irony all through this storyline. Some of it is so obvious, you just can't miss it. So when you look down... And you see in verse 12, the more the Egyptians afflicted them, what? The more they multiplied. In Pharaoh's wisdom, he tries to undo what God is doing, and His best laid plans only seems to result in God's promises being magnified, being increased for God's people. The more they afflicted them, the more they opposed them, the more they went after them, the more God's people continued to multiply. Now, people, do not misunderstand. This does not mean their life is still hard. Their life is still miserable. But here's the thing that we want to consider. Even in the misery of this life, by virtue of the fact that God is still blessing them and multiplying them, that in and of itself is another sign and a reminder that in misery God can still bring blessing to His people. God's blessings for His people do not depend on whether or not we have won favor with the world. God's blessings for His people do not depend on whether or not We get access to the halls of power. God's blessings for His people do not depend on our lives being easy and comfortable 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. God's blessing remains fixed and settled on His people no matter what happens in the rest of the world, and you can be confident in that. So plan number two. Part of wisdom is recognizing that your first plan didn't work, and so, well, we're going to need to do a second plan. So plan number two by the wise Pharaoh. Instead of trying to whittle them down, he's going to try to wean them or winnow them out through the midwives. So he goes down in verse 15, he speaks to the Hebrew midwives and basically says, when you're there helping to deliver the babies, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. That'll do it. Apparently we couldn't wear these people down. Attrition is not going to work. We, we need to be more direct. We'll, we'll kill the male children. Wise, powerful Pharaoh. Does that plan work? (laughs) No, exactly right. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because this is Pharaoh's plan and Pharaoh's wisdom that is trying to oppose God's plan and God's wisdom with God's promises. Of course it doesn't work. Notice though, wise, mighty, powerful Pharaoh, what is it that is the undoing, what's the flaw in his plan, in plan number two? What is it that thwarts attempt number two? Women. I say that with the utmost respect. No, seriously. Here is a man who is at the height of his power, the world at his fingertips. No one dares ever go against what Pharaoh says, but two women do. Women. Women. not just women though, right, women who fear God. It might be instructive, by the way, not just for the women in the room, but also for the men as well, to consider that we're being led to believe, we're being told in no uncertain terms that the reason that they refused to obey what clearly is an evil and wicked command is because they feared God. Right? That's, That's obvious. Right? Notice, they do not refuse to obey Pharaoh's command because they are desiring to create a platform for themselves. I know how to get a jump on my Twitter followers. I know how to get a mass movement on Instagram. I'm going to speak truth to power. Here's girl power, right? Doing the Lord's work. Going to make Not that. They're not doing it for a reputation. They're not doing it for attention. This is nothing more, nothing more. This is nothing more. Then two women who fear the Lord, who believe that the Lord is the one who orders all things, who rules and reigns supreme, and them simply saying, I'm going to obey the Lord. And they go about their business quietly, so quietly, that some period of time passes before Pharaoh realizes, you know what? Where are all these Hebrew kids coming from? These women are not doing what I told them to do. Women, right, the application here should be easy. Women, don't underestimate the influence, the effectiveness, the power that God determines to use through you simply by walking in faith and obedience with Him. This world is geared to look to the strong, to look to the influential, to look to the wealthy. We look down on. We don't give much time or attention to anything that has a hint of weakness. But here, God's promises thrive and flourish with His people in part because two women, two, said, we fear God and we're going to obey Him. two moms in a year two maybe raising kids right now that a generation later will do significant dramatic things for the kingdom of god it doesn't look that way when you're changing 50 diapers in the course of an hour when you're pulling your hair out trying to think what in the world are we going to eat for supper again i can't do this yet another day women don't underestimate whether you're young, middle aged, retired, empty nesters, don't underestimate the purpose and the plans that God has for you, even as weaker vessels, to accomplish great things for His kingdom as you walk in faith and obedience. So we've had two plans. We're going to wear them down by way of attrition, we're going to winnow them down by way of the midwives. Neither one of those work. In fact, in order to make it abundantly clear that all of this has actually backfired on Pharaoh, skip down to verse. What do we want? We want verse 20. God was good to the midwives. And then notice, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Multiplied, became very mighty. Hold. Keep your finger there on that line, and go back to verse 7. The sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and then here it is, and multiplied and became very mighty, multiplied, became mighty. Same three words in verse 7 that opened up the story are used here in verse 20 to say, by the time you get to the end of everything that Pharaoh is trying to do, you know where you are? You're exactly where you were when all this got started, God blessing His people. Look at Psalm 33, 10 through 12. One of the things that's helpful when you're reading through Old Testament narrative because there are some things that are implicit in the text, they're not stated explicitly, you're supposed to observe these things as you read, is to find other passages of Scripture that articulate what you're seeing in that story. Let me give you one passage where I think that articulates what we're seeing in 1, 8 through 22. Psalm 33, verses 10 through 12. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, and the purposes of His heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He chose for His inheritance. Doesn't that sound like what we're reading in Exodus 1? Pharaoh comes and he says, we're going to be wise and shrewd. We're going to to get an action plan together as to how we can get this Hebrew problem under control. And so, he takes one attempt. He takes two attempts. In a second, we'll see he's got a third attempt coming, all of which to undo God's work. And Psalm 33 says, as if pointing back to this episode says, the reality is, it doesn't matter what anyone else plans. That plan does not get established. It's the Lord's plan that stands and that lasts. When you get down to that verse 12 in Psalm 33, if you count yourself as one of God's people, that means that the assurance that you have is that it does not matter at all what anyone plans to do to you or against you or with you. You belong to the Lord, and it's the Lord's plans for you that will be established, not man's plans for you. Hold your place here and go to Romans chapter 8. And start with me at verse 31. Before we read some of these verses, listen to me. This is very important. One of the pitfalls of reading in the Old Testament is that we can be lulled into thinking that the way that we know God's favor, the way that the, the, what makes us confident is that we have to be able to see and touch and hear God's blessing. In other words, it needs to be tangible, just like He's making a tangible blessing for the Israelites in giving them many descendants. We carry that over into the Christian life, and we get tricked into thinking, if I'm not seeing something good that I can touch, that I can measure, that I can quantify, that I can show to other people, I'm not sure that God is for me. I'm not sure that God is blessing me. Listen, Jesus upends all of this, and here's why. One of the reasons that the people of God in the Old Testament are given tangible, material blessings is so that there is evidence of the fact that in a sin-cursed, broken world, they can know in no uncertain terms that God is for them, that God favors them, that God is blessing them. It was meant to be a sign of His presence and fellowship with them. When Jesus comes, Jesus is the sign not money, not children, not marriage, not houses, not property, not investments, not retirement. Jesus is the sign. And Jesus enters into our suffering, takes it on Himself, and after suffering the brokenness of this world and the punishment that we deserve, He enters into His glory. And then we're told it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words... Because of Jesus, we don't need any tangible, touchable, smellable evidence of the fact that God loves us and is determined to bless us. He has already given us that in the death and resurrection of His Son. So listen then how all of this is turned on its head but still holds the principle to be true that God is blessing His people even when they're in the depths of misery and persecution. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. Start at verse 31. You know this passage. You've heard it a dozen times. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us and Pharaoh is against us, Israel could say, who wins the day? God does. If God is for us and my employer is against me, who is going to win the day? If God is for me and my spouse is against me, my in-laws are against me, my kids or my parents are against me. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter if God is on your side. The opposition is inconsequential. But it's not that the opposition can't actually touch us. They, they can. They do. Because we know that Paul is getting even to that reality in this same passage. So skip down to verse 35, Romans eight thirty-five. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death, all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That sounds like God's people are being touched. That sounds like life can be hard for God's people. That sounds like life from a natural human perspective can be miserable for God's people. But verse 37, but in all these things, all these things are tribulation, is distress, is persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, martyrdom. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. This is Exodus one eight through twenty two turned on its head. This is God's blessing resting on a persecuted and afflicted people, and yet He never steps away from them. He never leaves them. He never aban- never abandons them, and He never takes His blessing off of them. Jesus said, "When men." persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil things against you for my sake do what? Rejoice in that day for great is your reward in heaven. Peter will say In his letter, in chapters 3 and in chapters 4, if you suffer for Christ's sake, you are blessed and the Spirit of God is upon you. You cannot turn this on its head any more than to say that persecution is itself a sign of God's favor and blessing. But it is. Listen to me, people. All of that simply to say this, and to try to press home this truth. This world is hard, it is unforgiving, it is unloving, it certainly is not aligned with the will of our Father in heaven. It certainly does not honor and cherish the things that Christ has called us to. We are not promised that we will have an easy life in this age. We are promised, however, that even when this life is hard, that God is still with His people to bless them, to favor them, and that our reward is safe and secure with Him. Do not throw in the towel. You throw it all away if you throw it away now. Exodus chapter 2. We'll do this briefly. Exodus 1 ends on Pharaoh going to plan 3, verse 22, sorry, 122, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, that is, every Hebrew son that is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. You get the picture here? The restraints are off. If you're an Egyptian and you see a Hebrew boy, you now have legal sanction to drown them in the river. You don't have to be an officer of the court. You don't have to be sheriff. You don't have to be in civil government. You don't have to be in the military. You're an Egyptian, you can kill them. This is as bleak and as dark as it gets. Two one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, covered it over with tar and pitch, then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maidens, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Now, by decree of the king, what should happen right now? She should take the baby out of the basket and drop him in the river to drown. Verse 7, then the boys, the baby's sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will pay you your wages, mom I'll pay you to be a mom. By the way, where is that money going to come from? It's going to come from Pharaoh's coffers. I will take Pharaoh's money and pay you to be a mom to your son that should be dead, but the Egyptian court will cover all the expenses. Coincidence, I I know, it's crazy how this works. Verse 10, the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Let me just make two or three quick observations. Number one, it is interesting to note that when this son is provided, who is going to be the future deliverer, the deliverer that God is going to raise up to bring his people out of bondage and slavery and oppression, When this son appears on the scene, he appears in the absolute worst time that he could show up. The deliverer, the son, could have been provided when Pharaoh was working on plan one. God said, nope, not yet. Could have done it with plan two, when the midwives were supposed to be taking care of this. And God, knowing that the midwives feared Him, it could have provided the Son then. Nope. Let's wait until it gets really, really dark and bleak, and then let's send the future Deliverer. You see that? And this Deliverer that's born is not born in a foreign country, in a foreign land. He's not someone who is born in freedom with all of the perks that this life has to offer, and then who rides in on a white stallion to rescue this poor, pitiful people group. No, this deliverer is actually born into the exact situation that God's miserable people are living. Anyone starting to pick up echoes yet? New Testament echoes? Paul says, "...in the fullness of time..." God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Our Deliverer comes, and He is raised up in the very center of the misery and despair that belongs to us because of our sin and rebellion. He identifies with His people in every way. He grows, He matures, He lives perfectly, fulfilling the will of the Father to deliver a people such that He goes to the cross to act as a substitutionary payment for the sin and misery of His people, and God raises Him up on the third day and then says, anyone who wants to come out of their slavery, out of their sickness, out of their sin, out of their oppression, you follow Him. See, the story of Moses and Israel is really not the story, first and foremost, about Moses. Moses is just pointing us to the real, true Deliverer in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to celebrate now when we come to the table. In Galatians chapter 4, verses that we already alluded to, Paul says this, starting at verse 3 So also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." And He goes on to say this in verse 6, "...because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba! father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God." As we get ready to to partake of these elements, to take the Lord's Supper, this is a gift and a blessing that God has given to His people. One of the ways that the Lord's Supper functions as a blessing for God's people is that it is a reminder that by the body and blood of Christ Himself, we have been reconciled to God, and we now are counted as sons and daughters. The reality of that promise is as real as the wafer that touches our tongue and the drink that passes over our lips. As real as what that is, that is how real our reconciliation is, and our promised inheritance to come. Precisely because this is given as a gift, this meal is given as a gift by the death and resurrection of Christ to His children. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have not repented and turned to Him in faith, you have not followed Him in obedience and baptism, Just simply let this plate pass by you. We are not doing this in any way to embarrass you or to shame you. If anything, we hope that if you let this plate pass by, that your spiritual appetite to feast on the kindness of God in Jesus Christ would be stirred and stimulated, so that before you leave today, you can know that you have been brought into the family of God and that He welcomes you, from today forward, to come and to sit at His table and to be fed free. Men, would you come forward to help distribute the bread? Please hold the bread until we are all able to partake it together. As Lisa plays on the piano, just quietly sit and reflect on the grace of God given to you in the person and work of Christ. One of the reasons that Christ is better than Moses is because while Moses was a deliverer and Jesus was a deliverer for His people, Moses was saved from the death that awaited Him in the Nile. Christ was not. The Father did not spare His own Son from death so that in dying He might give to us eternal life, take and eat, remembering that He died so that we might live. In Galatians 3, Paul says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. As we get ready to pass out the cup, consider that the brokenness of Christ's body was not a temporary or a partial thing, but by virtue of going to the cross and pouring out His blood, He gave all of His life. He gave to the last degree so that as we labored under a burden that we could not free ourselves from, the righteous requirements of God, we could be made free through the work of Christ on our behalf. He satisfied the law, so that we would not have to try to fulfill it anymore and could receive all of His grace and all of His work settled on our account. Men, would you come and distribute the cups? Father, how we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us, seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. We ask that in the trials and tribulations, the heaviness of this life, that you would not allow us to waver in doubt or unbelief, as if your promises rest on material gain, but that we would know that because you have offered up your own Son for us and given us your own Holy Spirit, that no matter what we encounter in this life, whether pleasant or painful, that our status and our security with you is fixed and final. We ask that you would help us to live with joy and confidence in that realization. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: If you would stand as we respond in worship. jesus sing that chorus one last time in the cross close with a benediction Hebrews chapter 13 verses 20 through 21 now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with every good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever amen you're dismissed